Section 5 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 3, Persia and the Meshed Pilgrim Road, Part 1. A mile or so through the cultivated fields brings me to the village just in time to be greeted by the shouts and hand-clapping of a wedding procession that is returning from conducting the bride to the bath. Men and boys are beating rude, homemade tambourines, and women are dancing along before the bride, clicking castanets, while a crowd of at least two hundred villagers, arrayed in whatever finery they can muster for the occasion, are following behind, clapping their hands in measured chorus. This hand-clapping is, I believe, pretty generally practiced by the villagers all over Central Asia on festive occasions. As a result of riding for the crowd, I receive an invitation to take supper at the house of the bridegroom's parents. Having obtained sleeping quarters at the Chapar Khana, I get the Shagird Chapar to guide me to the house at the appointed hour, and arrive just in time for supper. The dining room is a low-sealed apartment, about thirty feet long and eight wide, and is dimly lighted by rude grease lamps set on pewter lampstands on the floor. Squatting on the floor, with their backs to the wall, about fifty villagers form a continuous human line around the room. These all rise simultaneously to their feet as I am announced, bob their heads simultaneously, simultaneously say, Sahib Salam, and after I have been provided with the place, simultaneously resume their seats. Pewter trays are now brought in by volunteer waiters, and set on the floor before the guests. One tray for every two guests, and a separate one for myself. On each tray is a bowl of mast, milk soured with rennet, the yaourt of Asia Minor, a piece of cheese, one onion, a spoonful or two of pumpkin butter, and several flat wheaten cakes. This is the wedding supper. The guests break the bread into the mast and scoop the mixture out with their fingers, transferring it to their mouths with the dexterity of Chinese manipulating a pair of chopsticks. Now and then they take a nibble at the piece of cheese or the onion, and they finish up by consuming the pumpkin butter. The groom doesn't appear among the guests. He is under the special care of several female relations in another apartment, and is probably being fed with tidbits from the henna-stained fingers of old women, who season them with extravagant and lying stories of the bride's beauty, and duly impress upon him his coming matrimonial responsibilities. Supper eaten and the dishes cleared, an amateur luti from among the villagers produces a tambourine and castanets, and, taking the middle of the room, proceeds to amuse the company by singing extempore love songs in praise of the bride and groom to tambourine accompaniment and pendulous swayings of the body. Pretending to be carried away by the melodiousness and sentiment of his own productions, he gradually bends backward with hands outstretched and castanets jingling until his head almost touches the floor, and maintains that position while keeping his body in a theatrical tremor of delight. This is the finale of the performance, and the lute he comes and sets his skull-cap in front of me for a present. My next neighbor, 
the bridegroom's father, takes it up and hands it back with a deprecatory wave of the hand. The looty replies by promptly setting it down again. This time my neighbor lets it remain, and the looty is made happy by a coin. Torchlight processions to the different baths are now made from the house of both bride and groom, for this is the Hammam night, devoted to bathing and festivities before the wedding day. Torches are made with dry camel thorn, the blaze being kept up by constant renewal. A boy, with a lighted candle, walks immediately ahead of the bridegroom and his female relations, and a man with the far news brings up the rear. Nobody among the onlookers is permitted to lag behind the man with the far news, everybody being required to either walk ahead or alongside. The tambourine beating and shouting and hand-clapping of the afternoon is repeated, and every now and then the procession stops to allow one or two of the women to face the bridegroom and favor him with an exhibition of their skill in the execution of the hip-dance. The bridal procession is coming down another street, and I stop to try and obtain a glimpse of the bride, but she is completely enveloped in a flaming red shawl, and is supported and led by two women. There seems to be little difference in the two processions, except the preponderance of females in the bride's party. Everything is arranged in the same order, and women dance at intervals before the bride as before the groom. It begins raining before I retire for the night. It rains incessantly all night, and is raining heavily when I awake in the morning. The weather clears up at noon, but it is useless thinking of pushing on, for miles of tenacious mud intervene between the village and the gravelly desert. Moreover, the prospect of the fine weather holding out looks anything but reassuring. The villagers are all at home, owing to the saturated condition of their fields, and I come in for no small share of worrying attention during the afternoon. A pilgrim from Tehran turns up and tells the people about my appearance before the Shah. This increases their interest in me to an unappreciated extent, and with glistening eyes and eagerly rubbing fingers, they ask, Chandpul Padishah, how much money did the king give you? I showed the Shah the bicycle, and the Shah showed me the lions and tigers and panthers at Doshan Tepe, I tell them and a knowing customer called Meshedi Ali enlightens them still further by telling them I am not a Huluti to receive money for letting the Shah in Shah see me ride. Still, Luti or no Luti, the people think I ought to have received a present. I am worried to ride so incessantly that I am forced to seek self-protection in pretending to have sprained my ankle, and in returning to the Chapar Khana with a hypocritical limp. I station myself ostensibly for the remainder of the day on the Bala Khana front and busy myself in taking observations of the villagers and their doings. Time was, among ourselves, or more correctly, among our ancestors, when bloodletting was as much the professional calling of a barber as scraping chins or trimming hair, and when our respected beef-eating and beer-drinking forefathers considered wholesale bloodletting as a well-nigh universal panacea for fleshly ills. In traveling through Persia, one often observes things that suggest very strikingly those good old days of Queen Bess the citizens of Zedjan offering the Shah a present of 60,000 tomans as an inducement not to visit their city, as they did when he was on his way to Europe, has a true Elizabethan ring about it, 
a suggestion of the Virgin Queen's rabble retinue traveling about, devouring and destroying, and of justly apprehensive citizens seeing ruin staring them in the face, petitioning their regal mistress to spare them the dread calamity of a royal visit. The ancient Zoroastrian barber, no doubt, bled his patients and customers on the public streets of Persian towns for the benefit of their healths, when we pinned our pagan faith on druidical incantations and mystic rites and ceremonies. His Mussulman descendants were doing the same thing when we at length arrived at the same stage of enlightenment, and the Persian wielder of razor and tweezers today performs the same office as belonging to his profession. From my vantage point on the Balakana of the Laskard Chapar station, I watch, with considerable interest, the process of bleeding a goodly share of the male population of the village, for it is springtime, and in spring every Persian, whether well or unwell, considers the spilling of half a pint or so of blood very necessary for the maintenance of health. The village barber, with his arms bared, and the flowing or ample legs of his Aradan lassgird pantaloons tucked up at his waist, like a washerwoman's skirt, a bunch of raw cotton in lieu of lint under his left arm, and his keen-edged razor looks like a man who thoroughly realizes and enjoys the importance of the office he is performing, as from the bared arm or open mouth of one after the other of his neighbors he starts the crimson stream. The candidates for the barber's claret-tapping attentions bear their right arms to the shoulder, and bind for each other a handkerchief or piece of something tightly above the elbow, and the barber deftly slits a vein immediately below the hollow of the elbow joint, pressing out the vein he wishes to cut by a pressure of the left thumb. The blood spurts out. The patient looks at the squirting blood, and then surveys the onlookers with a, who cares, I don't, sort of a grin. He then squats down and watches it bleed about a half pint, occasionally working the elbow joint to stimulate the flow. Half a pint is considered about the correct quantity for an adult to lose at one bleeding. The barber then binds on a small wad of cotton. Now and then a customer gives the barber a trifling coin by way of bakshish, but the great majority give nothing. In a mere village like Lasgird, these periodical bloodlettings by the barber are, no doubt, regarded as being all in the family, rather than of professional services for a money consideration. The communal spirit obtains to a great extent in village life throughout both Asia Minor and Persia. Nevertheless, bakshish would be expected in Persia from those able to afford it. Some few prefer being bled in the roof of the mouth and they all squat on their hams in rows, some bleeding from the arm, others from the mouth, while the inevitable crowd of onlookers stand around, gazing and giving advice. While the barber is engaged in binding on the wad of cotton, or during any interval between patients, he inserts the handle of the razor between his close-fitting skull-cap and his forehead, letting the blade hang down over his face, edge outward, a peculiar disposition of his razor that he would no doubt be entirely at a loss to account for except that he is following the custom of his fathers as regards the customs of his ancestors whose trade or profession he invariably follows the asiatic is the most conservative of mortals what was good enough for my father and grandfather he says is certainly good enough for me 
and earnestly believing in this he never of his own accord thinks of changing his occupation or of making improvements later in the afternoon i descend from the balakana and take a strolling look at the village and with the shargird chapar for guide pay a visit to the old fortress the conspicuous edifice seen from the trail-worn limestone pass forgetting about my subterfuge of the sprained ankle i wander forth without the aforementioned lip but the people seem to have forgotten it as completely as i had at all events nobody makes any comments a ripple of excitement is caused by a two-storied house collapsing from the effects of the soaking rains an occurrence by no means infrequent in the spring in a country of mud-built houses a crowd soon appears upon the scene watching with unconcealed delight the spectacle of tumbling roof and toppling wall giving vent to their feelings in laughter and loud shouts of approval like delighted children whenever another bulky square of mud and thatch comes tumbling down fortunately nobody happens to be hurt beyond the half burying in the debris of some donkeys which are finally induced to extricate themselves by being vigorously bombarded with stones no sympathy appears to be given on the part of the spectators and evidently nothing of the kind is expected by the tenants of the tumbling house the wailing women and the look of consternation on the face of the men who barely escaped from the falling roof seem to be regarded by the spectators as a tomasha show to be stared at and enjoyed as they would stare at and enjoy anything not seen every day on the other hand the occupants of the house regard their misfortune as kismet returning to the chapar kliana i get the shired to pilot me into and round about the fortress it is rapidly falling to decay but is still in a sufficiently good state of preservation to show thoroughly its former strength and conformation the fortress is a decidedly massive building constructed entirely of mud and adobe bricks a hundred feet high of circular form and some two hundred yards in circumference the disintegrated walls and debris of former towers from a sloping mound or foundation about fifty feet in height and from this the perpendicular walls of the castle rise up huge and ugly for another hundred feet following a foot-trail up the mound-like base we come to a low gloomy passageway leading into the interior of the fort a door composed of one massive stone slab nothing less than a cannon shot would shatter guards the entrance to this passage which is the only accessible entrance to the place following it along for perhaps thirty yards we emerge upon a scene of almost indescribable squalor a scene that instantly suggests an overcrowded rookery in the tenement house slums of new york the place is simply swarming with people who like rabbits in an old warren seem to be moving about among the tumble-down mud huts anywhere and everywhere as though the old ruined fortress were burrowed through and through or that the people now moved through over under and around the remnants of what was once a more orderly collection of dwellings having long forsaken regular footways the inhabitants are ragged and picturesque and meandering about among them on the most familiar terms are hundreds of goats although everything is in a more or less dilapidated condition huts or cells still rise above each other in tiers and the people clamber about from tier to tier as if in emulation of their venturesome four-footed associates who are here 
we may well imagine, in as perfect a paradise as vagrom goatish nature would care for, or expect. At a low estimate, I should place the present population of the old fortress at a thousand people, and about the same number of goats. In the days when the bold Turkoman raiders were wont to make their dreaded damans almost up the walls of Tehran, and such strongholds as this were the only safeguard of outlying villagers, the interior of Lasgird Fortress resembled a spacious amphitheater, around which hundreds of huts rose, tier above tier, like the cells of a monster pigeon-house, affording shelter in times of peril to all the inhabitants of Lasgird and to such refugees as might come in. At the first alarm of the dreaded man's stealer's approach, the outside villagers repaired to the fortress with their portable property. The donkeys and goats were driven inside and occupied the interior space, and the massive stone door was closed and barricaded. The villagers' granaries were inside the fortress, and provisions for obtaining water were not overlooked so that once inside the people were quite secure against any force of Turkomans whose heaviest arms were muskets. The suggestion of an amphitheatre, as above described, is quite patent at the present day, in something like two or three hundred tiered dwellings. In the days of its usefulness there must have been a thousand. Thanks to the Russian occupation of Turkestan, there is no longer any need of the fortress, and the present population seem to be occupying it at the peril of having it some day tumble down about their ears. For, massive though its walls most certainly are, they are but mud, and the people are indifferent about repairs. Failing to surprise the watchful villagers in their fields or outside dwellings, the baffled marauders would find confronting them fifty feet of solid mud wall without so much as an air hole in it, rising sheer above the mound-like foundation, and above this tiers of rooms or cells, from inside which archers or musketeers could make it decidedly interesting for any hostile party attempting to approach. This old fortress of Lasgird is very interesting, as showing the peaceful and unwarlike Persian riot's method of defending his life and liberty against the savage human hawks that were ever hovering near, ready to swoop down and carry him and his off to the slave markets of Kiva and Bokhara. These were times when seed was sown, and harvest garnered in fear and trembling, for the Turkoman raiders were adepts at swooping down when least expected, and they rode horses capable of making their hundred miles a day over the roughest country. Incredible as this latter fact may seem, it is, nevertheless, a well-known thing in Central Asia that the Turkoman's horse is capable of covering this remarkable distance, and of keeping it up for days. A thunderstorm is raging violently, and drenching everything as I retire for the night, dampening, among other things, my hopes of getting away from Lasgird for some days. For between the village and the gravelly and consequently always traversable desert are some miles of slimy clay of the kind that in wet weather makes an experienced cycler wince to think of crossing. The floor of the Balakana forms once again my nocturnal couch, but the temperature lowers perceptibly as the night advances and the rain continues, and toward morning it changes into snow. The doors and windows of my room are to be called doors and windows only out of courtesy to a rude, unfurnished effort to imitate these things, 
and the floor, at daybreak, is nicely carpeted with an inch or so of the beautiful snow, and a four-inch covering of the same greets my vision upon looking outside. Determined to make the best of the situation, I remove my quarters from the cold and drafty balakana to the stable, and send the shagird chapar out in quest of camel-thorn, bread, eggs, and pomegranates, thinking thus to obtain the luxury of a bit of fire and something to eat in comparative seclusion. This vain hope proves that I have not even yet become thoroughly acquainted with the Persians. No sooner does my camel-thorn blaze begin to crackle and the smoke to betray the whereabouts of a fire than shivering, blue-nosed villagers begin to put in their appearance their backs humped up and their bare ankles and slipshod feet adding not a little to the general aspect of wretchedness that seems inseparable from persians in cold weather and these are the people who during a gleam of illusory sunshine yesterday were so nonchalantly parting with their blood of which by the by your bread and cucumber eating and cold water drinking persian has little enough and that little thin enough at any time these rag-bedecked shivering wretches hop up on the race platform where the fire is burning and squat themselves around it in the most sociable manner and under the thawing process of passing their hands through the flames poking the coals together and close attention to the details of keeping it burning they quickly thaw out in more respects than one Fifteen minutes after my fire is lighted, the spot where I anticipated a samovar of tea and a pomegranate or two, in peace, is occupied by as many Persians as can find squatting room, talking, shouting, singing, and kalyan smoking, meanwhile eagerly and expectantly watching the preparations for making tea, preferring to leave them in full possession rather than be in their uncongenial midst, I pass the time in promenading back and forth behind the horses. After walking to and fro a few times, the, to them, singular performance of walking back and forth excites their easily aroused curiosity, and the wondering attention of all present becomes once again my unhappy portion. An Asiatic's idea of enjoying himself in cold weather is squatting about a few coals of fire, making no physical exertion whatever beyond smoking and conversing, and the spectacle of a Ferengi promenading back and forth when he might be following their example of squatting by the fire is to them a subject of no little wonder and speculation. The redeeming feature of my enforced sojourn at Lasgird is the excellence of the pomegranates, for which the place is famous, and of which there seems an abundance left over through the winter. A small quantity of seedless pomegranates, a highly valued variety, are grown here at Lasgird, but they are all sent to Tehran for the use of the Shah and his household, and are not to be obtained by anyone. It has been a raw, disagreeable day, and at night I decide to sleep at the stable, where it is at least warmer though the remove is but a compromise by which one's olfactory sensibilities are sacrificed in the interest of securing a few hours sleep an unexpected but none the less welcome deliverance appears on the following morning in the shape of a frost that forms on the sticky mud a crust of sufficient thickness to enable me to escape across to the welcome gravel beyond the lasgard plain ere it thaws out 
thus on the precarious path of a belated morning frost breaking through here jumping over there i leave lasgird and its memories of wedding processions and bloodletting its huge mud fortress its pomegranates and its discomforts end of section five recording by william tomko